Hi, this is Yonit. This episode was recorded yesterday before the tragic events in Mount Meron in Israel last night. We still don't know the full magnitude of the incident during the celebrations of Lagba Omer, and our thoughts and prayers are with the families of the dead and the wounded. We are hoping for better days and better news. I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy from Keshe Podcast, two Jews on the news. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. How are you doing? I'm okay. You know, given everything that has been going on in Israel this week, I had a tempting career change uh, to offer you. If oh, you're, no. um, um, You have to be a little open-minded, but uh, you maybe want to be first in the prime minister rotation, you know, Netanyahu has been uh, handing these offers out to uh, a few people. Maybe we could uh, set you up. Well, he's offering it to everyone else. So I'm be- I was beginning to feel a bit kind of what am I <laughs> chop liver about this? Why, you know, why was the call not coming to be in rotation? The problem is, if it was let's say you and me, I would be very relaxed about that. You know, who rotating? We can take turns leading. No, of course, I'd, I'd be first because uh, you, you know you'd just, be first. I'd okay, be second. I'd be relaxed. Sure. But with Netanyahu, you feel unless. You know, the table that you sign the deal on is itself nailed down to the floor. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't uh, ex- believe a word he would say. But obviously, the first demand must be, um, if I'm going to do this, that I must go first, because then I can control all the levers and appoint all the people to prevent what would normally happen, which is BB finding some way to undo the agreement we'd made. So would that be good enough? Would I be, if I, as long as I nailed everything down, would I be wise to I go just, into this deal? You know, I just, I think it's such a great, of course, the answer is yes. And I think it's just such a great story. I mean, just think about it, right? I mean, it's Guardian columnist turned Israeli prime minister. That is a reverse ferret, if I remember correctly. <laughs> and, very, and you, sl- very nice deployment of and, our reverse ferret. We haven't seen that for a was, while. It's not strictly speaking. It's not strictly speaking a reverse ferret. But I think, well, actually it could be because it would be me it, reversing my previous position. Yeah, okay. Exactly, I, I accept it. exactly. And just think of how this would be the greatest excuse for you. I did not, you know, my column didn't get in on time because I'm in the Israeli prime minister. I didn't wash the dishes because I am the Israeli prime minister. I think it fits wonderfully. I love the way your joke is predicated on the assumption that it is ridiculous for a columnist, a weekly newspaper columnist on a British newspaper, to become a prime minister. Uh, well, I've got news for you. Yeah. Our prime minister two in words, this country. Boris Johnson, right, exactly. Two words. I mean, that is what he is. And it's one of the reasons why people like me have such a dim view of Boris Johnson is we know all his tricks. We know how this guy operates because he does the job we do. And we used to be direct colleagues with him. We've, we know exactly all all the ruses he deploys. So yes, just as I do not think it's a great idea for Britain to have a columnist turn prime minister, I may politely decline your rotation offer, uh, <laughs> Yonit, because I don't think it will be good for the people of Israel to have me as their prime minister in whatever sequence you like. But it's interesting you mention it because, um, it's, it's, as you say, he's been asking everyone else. So, I mean, you know, bring me up to date because I've been away from the news for 10 seconds. So <laughs> therefore, he may have offered it to someone else while I wasn't looking. Yeah, well, uh, I was going to ask you, if, what, what box do you want to start with? Do you want to start with the what's going on with Netanyahu box or what's going on on the other side of the road with the possible uh, Lapid-Bennett uh, uh, government? But I guess you want to start with the Netanyahu yeah, Let's start with Bibi, just because in this particular soap opera, he has been the central star protagonist 
villain, hero, whichever way you want to cut it uh, for so long that True. we have to begin with him. So what's so, happening with so him? So five days until the clock runs out. He's essentially, right, a pilot flying around in circles with the fuel running out and ground controllers are trying to help him land but are actually taking bets on, on when he'll crash. Um, what The most important thing that I think happened this week on the in the Netanyahu box uh, is that he tried to appoint a loyalist to the position of Minister of Justice, refusing to appoint Benny Gantz to the uh, job basically a breach of the, uh, the basic law enacted to allow for this two-headed coalition. Uh, we have to remind our view, our, our listeners maybe that the unity government is still in place, right? Because no other coalition has taken its, its place. This is an important uh, uh, move. Uh, the AG blocked Netanyahu. The Supreme Court blocked him. He had to walk this back and eventually say that Gantz is the uh, uh, minister of justice. Now, what? Th- why this is important is, first, because it's an ominous signal for all those people contemplating a rotation with Netanyahu, right? It's uh, uh, basically— like me. Exactly. So this is so this, a, a this warning is signal for, for you. To be, grounds um, for me to be wary. And, and okay. secondly, it appears that Netanyahu is in something of uh, a free fall. Really, you know, we always treat Netanyahu as this sort of Houdini who keeps on pulling the tricks out of his sleeve and the rabbits out of the hat. And now it's more like these half-baked ideas coming out of his hat or, you know, the half-baked rabbits or just the sad confetti. To, to quote uh, another B.B. King, the thrill is gone. There's something pale about him. He's He seems um, desperate. After saying all this, Jonathan, the usual warning applies uh, when trying to say that Netanyahu maybe is at uh, his final sort of uh, political uh, days. You always have to say there's, first of all, he wants to be saved by this idea of the special fifth elections, not uh, elections of the Knesset, but just a special election for the prime minister. And he wants to have that um, happen. That is his uh, uh, lifesaver. And again, I would still say that this is not someone uh, who would go gentle uh, into the night. Um, do, do we want to talk about the other side? That is yes, no, let's do be... because the 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 thing, question that's always been going through people's minds is okay if you can just about get your head around the idea of BB somehow, uh, despite you know the law of gravity that seems to <laughs> keep him planted in that chair. Mm-hmm. If he somehow then you know then what next and. You know, there is no clear line of sight. So tell us about the anti-BB camp. Yeah. So first of all, the major news in that uh, arena is, of course, the fact that Naftali Bennett met with Mansour Abbas. Um, And just to think of, you know, what that means in Israeli politics, right? The person who was head of the Yesha Council, the uh, uh, head of the organization of the Israeli settlements, meeting with the head of uh, the Ram Party, the Islamist Party, and essentially wooing him, right? Basically trying to convince him to support a Naftali Bennett-run government. It also means that Naftali Bennett has made that decision, right, to become prime minister, which is also uh, very uh, dramatic. There are Two groups here, and the ideology between them, there is obviously big dif- there are big differences, right? If you have Naftali Bennett, Mr. Annexation on one side, and Nitzan Horowitz, you know, Mr. Occupation, we got to solve occupation, we got to solve this problem on the other side, then there are, there's a lot to go through to create this this government. You remember in um, uh, the trial of the Chicago 7 when they asked Abby Hoffman, did you collude with the other defendants to disrupt the Democratic National Convention? He said, collude with the other defendants? We can't even agree on lunch. They can't mm-hmm. agree on lunch. So they have to decide to put aside all of their ideological differences and and go for this, this government. Um, look, let's be very honest. No one knows what's going to happen. We are in the eye of a hurricane. 
It can go in all of these crazy directions. We really do not know where this is heading. And maybe it's an it's opportunity to just say how bizarre the situation is, right? When you look at the one hand, this option of, again, quote unquote, a leftist government led by Naftali Bennett in rotation with Lapid. Or on the other hand, what was an option until a week or two ago of a so-called right-wing government with the extreme right and the support of the uh, Arab a party. You know, this is, we are in bizarre land. That, that is, you know, where we're standing. And, and, you know, it's the sheer bizarreness of it is what makes me think that there may be one little bunny still up the sleeve of Netanyahu because he benefits from the fact that the alternative could look so implausible. Mm-hmm. And he can, you know, you just would not put it past him to find a way that if they announce they've patched something together, he then, you know, goes over their heads, talks to the Israeli public and says, how can you believe these people? How could you have an Islamist sitting in a party with some, uh, you know, with Naftali Bennett, the former settler leader, he's betrayed you, and somehow chip away that it falls apart before it ever starts uh, because he's still got such a sway over that kind of BB tribe of the nationalist liquid right in the country. And I think it's the sheer uh, incongruence and mm. incoherence, really, of the alternative um, that, that makes me think, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I can really see it how, and how it would go here. I'm interested in this idea of rotation between Bennett and Lapid. Who decides of those two who goes first? I mean, oh, it's been decided. Uh, and, uh, and that would be Naftali Bennett. Um, even, though, and, even though Bennett has fewer seats than Lapid. Yes, you're searching for logic in Israeli politics, I see. That's nice. But, um, of course, <laughs> um, uh, Lapid has said, and he said it, by the way, before the elections and after, he said, I will do everything I can that Netanyahu will not be prime minister. And if that means that I will say that uh, Bennett is first in rotation, he is first in rotation. By the way, that is the only thing that would make Bennett consider this. Uh, so that is what is going to happen. They have to set up a whole apparatus to what happens when they argue, right? Because they are going to argue and Israeli reality doesn't wait for that kind of uh, settlement. So what happens if they argue over a rule of law and what happens if they argue over new laws and about settlements and any other issue that you can think of? Um, and again, what they are saying is theoretically we will set it all aside and work for the, the good of the country, which is like the sharks and the jets, right? In West Side Story saying, forget about our fights. Let's just, you know, for the good of the neighborhood. <laughs> um, I, I don't know how that works. You have to also, you know, d- decide who is going to sit in what ministry, who's going to have what portfolio. Um, good luck. It's not going to be an easy task. And they have really, the time is running out on that, right? As we said, five days for Netanyahu. If, the, if he indeed fails and is not pull, pulling, in, as you say, another little bunny, then they have, you know, a limited time to to uh, bring forth their government. I mean, it does make me think all this, um, and the, because, of course, the premise of all this, the dr- engine for it, is Netanyahu's desperate desire to avoid the legal consequences of his own actions and to avoid, you know, the, the process that was already deeply in train of his own trial um, on various charges relating to corruption. And I'm thinking how envious he must be of the British system, where right now the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is under great pressure over a whole series of very Netanyahu-like scandals. Oh, actually. yeah. <laughs> I mean, they really have a very sort of Bibi and Sara quality to them. It's about the de- decor of the Downing Street flat. Mm-hmm. Did they use 
lose a whole lot of extra money. I know in the Israeli context, it would be, well, actually, it, 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 this applies to both. There was a first initial flurry. Was it taxpayers' money? Then, no, was it a mysterious donor? Then uh, Johnson then says, no, I, I've paid for it, but maybe he's paid for it eventually, paying back after a donor foot foot the original bill all of this is going on it does you know translate it into hebrew and it really would and, be and of I, course hell hath no fury like an advisor scorned which is also a lesson that netanyahu could have taught boris johnson well right i mean with the people we've been talking about whether yeah. it's naftali bennett or also historically victor lieberman they were all former advisors weren't they to Bibi? and here B, boris johnson's big problem is uh, his former advisor dominic cummings who has been sort of spilling the beans. But the key thing in the British system is, ultimately, the process for investigating this goes through the civil service. And who ultimately is in charge of the civil service? One, Boris Johnson. Mm -hmm. He, as prime minister, gets to decide either whether he should be investigated or indeed whether or not he has violated the so-called ministerial code. So Bibi must look very enviously over at London and think, well, I could really use a system like that. I would have declared myself in the clear a long time ago. He doesn't have that advantage. Uh, but I think it's always worth keeping our eye on that because that is why so much of this machinations and uh, 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 politicking has unfolded because he is desperate to hold on to that chair and the immunity he thinks it he thinks it grants him um mm. i wondered if we should talk about the world outside or rather the way is you know this is like that thing in conversation when you go anyway enough about me what do you <laughs> think about me right because enough about israel what does the world think about israel and the reason why i'm saying it is because this week human rights watch and there will already be unholy listeners coming out in a rash at just the mention of that organisation. But Human Rights Watch put out a report, 213 pages of it, in which they, I think the title of the report is A Threshold Crossed. They said that Israel has crossed that threshold in that people in Israel and, you know, in my hearing, not one but two Israeli prime ministers uh, have said, former Israeli prime ministers have warned that Israel, if it continues on its path, I'm thinking of Ehud Barak and Ehud Olmert, both said if Israel continues on its path, it eventually will be uh, practising apartheid. And Human Rights Watch say, yep, that moment has come. That threshold has been crossed. And I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot this week, partly because look, Human Rights Watch is not the first. There have been Israeli groups who've made the same move re relatively recently. Betzelem, the Human Rights Group, said that. And Yesh Din, the legal group, have also said it meets this very particular legal standard. And what it boils down to is essentially the idea of there being two legal systems in one territory which in which one system privileges one group over another. And they say that in the West Bank, the occupied West Bank, there's a civil, if you're Jewish and Israeli, there is a, you're under civil Israeli law. And if you're Palestinian, you're under what they call draconian military rule. And the existence of those two systems for you, for a while, you could say, look, that's temporary. But now, and this is why Human Rights Watch say a threshold has been crossed. It's now so clearly permanent. It's 55 years. It'll be, or after June, it'll be in its 55th year. And, you know, therefore, you've got to kind of call it as it is. And you take that together with, and I'm quoting here the report, sweeping restrictions on Palestinians' movement, the near categorical denial of building permits, permits, for Palestinians' land confiscations, home demolitions, the full panoply, it is clearly designed, say Human Rights Watch, to enforce the domination of one group 
over another. I want to say something about how I think diaspora Jews and friends of Israel react, and actually Israelis themselves, react to this, how they have strategies for coping with bad news like this. But I know you've been reading it, uh, Yonit, so I want to hear what you think about it. You know, when you read this report, what I felt really is that one thing is lacking, and when I use the word lacking as an understating, uh, understatement, context. There's absolutely no context. Um, Israel didn't wake up one day and say, let's be cruel to the Palestinians, right? It, uh, it isn't arbitrary. It isn't random. There is context. And the Palestinians aren't passive. They are, their decisions is, are part of the story, right? The port obviously doesn't mention Israel's attempt at making peace over 20 years, dismantling settlements in Gaza. It doesn't mention terror attacks or hundreds of or rock, rockets on cities all over the country. Now, I'm mentioning this because if you don't give context, then everything can be apartheid. Just to, you know, you read from the report, but just to give an example. When you discuss the fact that Israel um, put basically tra a travel ban on Gaza, although it agreed in the Oslo Accords that Gaza and the West Bank are uh, the same unit, and it did it in 2007. But this report doesn't say what happened in 2007. Now, something very dramatic happened in 2007, which is Hamas, a terror organization, took over, violently took over Gaza after winning the election. I'm saying this not because it dismisses the pain of the Palestinians or that Israel is free from criticism, but if you don't mention the fact that Hamas is a terror organization that is set to uh, annihilate Israel and took over the Gaza Strip in 2007, then you're not giving context to whoever is reading this. And I think it's important because without context, again, everything can be considered apartheid. Now, obviously that word um, has created a huge arguments uh, in the world. I would point to two pieces by uh, Alon Pincus and Aretz and, and uh, Hirsch Goodman in, in Forward, Hirsch Goodman being actually someone who fleed apartheid in South Africa, explaining why he thinks this is disingenuous. I think many Israelis feel, I'm adding into this my good friend uh, Jeff Abramovitz, who also fled uh, apartheid in, in South Africa, a lot of people feel that putting the, that title on this devalues the horror of what blacks South Africans went through, but also adding the most or giving the title, the most odious system, one of the most odious systems we know of to this situation is to delegitimize Israel and not to try and solve the problem. And this is where I'm kind of tying into what you say, you're saying, Jonathan, I think, which is the point, and I think where we disagree, um, that issue of being temporary. And what you're saying and what they're I don't know if it's what you're saying. What they're essentially saying is you can't, after 54 years, say that this is temporary, right? This is where I disagree because <laughs> we are talking right now. We spent a, a while talking about the fact that Mansour Abbas is the most important person in Israeli politics and Naftali Bennett met with him to woo him. If I had described the situation to you six months ago, you would have said I, I'm hallucinating. Things change, and when they do, they change fast. And something can be... Um, inconceivable. And then after it happens, it's inevitable. So I'm just saying that the fact that things, and again, it's not that they haven't changed for 54 years. They have, right? Israel has decided this, certain things, tried to make peace. Palestinians, for their own reasons, decided not to. Terror ensued in Israel. This is the narrative of the Israelis, of course, not the narrative of the Palestinians. But it, the, the point I'm trying to make in this regard is that um, the fact that it had, hasn't changed thus far is A, not an indication of the fact that people have an attempt to, to change it, and B, that it won't change. Did I go on a very long rant? 
No, I have, not I have a, some. I have more. Uh, well, uh, and, no, we've, we we could both go go on. I'm sure about it. We could do a rotation agreement for how we talk about this. Now, I think the the the, the look the thing about it being temporary. Um, I realised I felt as if that piece of the report was sort of aimed, a, you know, in a way at somebody like me because for mm. a long time I have made a big distinction in my mind between what happens in what rather quaintly I still might call Israel proper, Israel within the Green Line, nineteen you know nineteen sixty seven borders. And what happens in the uh, occupied West Bank. And in a way, when you look at the actual degree of integration, not just the number of settlers in the hundreds of thousands, but just the road network, the infrastructure, etc., you begin to think maybe it's a bit naive to keep pretending these two things are not an integrated whole. And therefore, I think it is legitimate to talk about them to talk rather about the territory Israel governs, has governed for decades, and I think we could agree is not any time soon about to stop being the ultimate um, ruler of. There's that, that breakthrough isn't coming any time soon. All that said, I think Human Rights Watch, by going on the apartheid thing, I think you know, you're know you right. They do, they're doing that because that means it's the most odious system, more or less, uh, that people can remember. Let's you know, say second, think, at least. I yes. was going to say, well, it's actually second most, but it's it's got a huge power. Funnily enough, I wonder if it was counterproductive for them because I think it'd be more effective if they didn't put that, because the, the discussion is going to be entirely like the one you and I are having, entirely about the A word rather than about the actual things. I would like there to be a discussion about the denial of building permits, about the restriction on movement, about land confiscation, about home demolition. Uh, by instead, they've made it all about apartheid. Look, I think what you've done in your, you were wrong to call it a rant, it was much better than that, was a much better response than, than, than any I've heard from the people who are the kind of regular defenders of Israel who immediately did the usual things. And that that is the idea of finding strategies to put your fingers in your ears and not hear what is being told to you. And, you know, that included immediate attacks on Human Rights Watch as an organisation, attacking Kenneth Roth, the executive director, over things he said, inept things, stupid things, mm -hmm. insensitive things he said on anti-Semitism in the past, or saying, look, you know, uh, Israel's doing really well on vaccination, so let's look mm -hmm. over there no, instead. No, or saying that the, I think the founder of the organisation admitted that they are obsessive about Israel, which is another claim that... that uh, That's true. Like, I mean, I think mm -hmm. um, Bernstein, Robert Bernstein mm -hmm. did break from Human Rights Watch. They, they mm -hmm. mended the rift just before his death over this issue. And yes, Human Rights Watch have got form. What love, you know, the standard Hasbara line is always to say, ah, they're singling out Israel for criticism they don't brand to anyone else. Mm -hmm. I looked into it. Human Rights Watch just last October used the apartheid label, the legal definition about Myanmar and its treatment of the Rohingya people. And they did do a report in 2018 about Hamas and Palestinian Authority and said they were committing crimes against humanity specifically in yeah. terms of torture. So it's, you know, it's there are some very easy default mechanisms that I think people, particularly outside Israel actually, resort to in order to not have to deal with, forget the apartheid label, but the underlying reality that Human Rights Watch is describing, which are really uncomfortable to deal with. And mm -hmm. I think we've got, and I say we mean people bound up with Israel, have got very good at not dealing with this stuff and not even looking at it because we can put our fingers in our ears and go la, la, la instead. I, I want to talk about the fingers in, in the ears, but I, I do want to sort of... Um 
push back on, on, on something you said. First of all, I think we can agree, and again, we're fixating on that whole A word because yeah. that is what has been coming out of this. But Yeah, and they would the, have known that was going to happen. Of course, and I have, uh, this is intentional but but because it gets headlines. But at the end of the day, this isn't you know racial subjugation. It isn't structural design. Israelis are stuck in this because they are afraid. Because you and I know, and every poll in Israel shows, that Israel would give up a lot and would go for this plan if they were promised or assured that they would not blow up while sitting with their families in, in a cafe. That is the most normal thing. They they are frightened. And they went through years and years of daily terror. We all did. And that affects your thinking. And that kind of ties into what you were talking about when you said putting your uh, fingers in your ears because Israelis are, they're frustrated, they're tired, they're traumatized, and they have a limited attention span to listen to these um, arguments. And when you add upon that an Israeli prime minister who has decided to go for the status quo, and you, when you add to that the pathology of the Israeli political system, right, that the only thing that matters is to get rid of Netanyahu. So you can have an anomaly like the Israeli left, Mirab Micheli and Nitzan Horowitz, sitting with Naftali Bennett as a prime minister just to get rid of uh, uh, Netanyahu, then you understand the Israeli psyche and why it's hard for them to listen to the things that you are saying. Um, and I can, you know, I can understand that. That's why that making sense? I, I th- it I'm makes sure. a lot of sense. And that's why I was quite careful to talk about people outside Israel. I know, but um, I dragged you to talk about it. No, no, because in a way I get that people in Israel themselves, how, how fear lives on. That's why I was very careful to talk about people outside the country. In a way, I'm much less forgiving of them. They don't live with the daily realities and fear you're describing. All in a way I'm asking is for people outside who, you know, would instinctively just define themselves as supporters of Israel. Forget the label, the apartheid label. Look at some of the day-to-day on-the-ground reality being described in this report and reports by others, Betzelem or Yeshtin, in which they are describing a life of closures, of restricted movement, of uh, uh, land confiscation. And just think that is, it is true that there is a different reality if you are a Palestinian in the occupied West Bank than if you are a Jewish Israeli. And that difference is in a way a starting point. And, you know, just look at it rather than trying to find a myriad set of excuses to look the other way. Which I wanted to say that Palestinians are obviously not passive. And obviously there were deals on the table that weren't, that were rejected. Maybe there weren't good enough for the Palestinians, but they're better than what you're describing now. Uh, our editor is pulling out hairs because he wants us to move on, Jonathan. <laughs> so so we want to move on to a story that's been making headlines, uh, not only in France um, and not only in the Jewish community. It's, it's the story of the horrific killing of Sarah Khalimi, a Parisian Jew who was murdered in 2017 by her neighbor, an immigrant uh, from Mali called uh, Kobili Traoré who beat her and threw her to her death from her balcony. Now, the court uh, decided that he cannot be held responsible for his actions as he was in the state of a psychotic attack from drugs he used, although he chose his Jewish neighbor and the only Jew in the building uh, and yelled anti-Semitic curses um, at her. Now, all this, um, what it did was enrage the community and, of course, they uh, went out in rallies of thousands. It's not only that. it, It speaks to the helplessness of the Jewish community that kind of feels like uh, they can't, you know, they can't trust the system. I have a, a very good friend who lived in France for over a decade, and she, I spoke to her about the feeling that the French Republic was always that thing that had your back, and now it's, it's, you know, the ground is shaking uh, uh, beneath 
beneath their feet. Yeah, it, you know, a curiosity about European Jewish communities, and I include Britain in this, is that we look so often and uh, to Israel, we talk about and think about Israel or American Jewry, and we know much less about each other. So, you know, the news about Jews in France or in Germany will reach, you know, Jews in Britain more slowly than others. And that is how it's been even with French Jews. And yet there is an awareness that actually it is really, you know, there are moments where it is really difficult there from, you know, left and right, as it were, because there is, you know, the prospect of Le Pen uh, uh, and that party, you know, facing off against Macron in a presidential election on the one hand. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and then on the other side, there is this really, um, you know, violent history of uh, attacks on French Jews that have, in, like the, it did in this case, have come from, you know, uh, Muslim perpetrators. And it's very, very hard often to talk about, but there is this threat from both directions. Mm. Um, the, 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 the thing that, that leapt out at me in one of the accounts was this quote from the head of France's Green Party who said that uh, after the court decision that he understands the agitation of the Jewish community yes. on the issue. And it really leapt out at me partly because, you know, there's an amazing sort of jurisprudence issue here, which is what? So if you're just on drugs, you can kill whoever you like and you're not going to uh, face um, uh, a prosecution for it or, for, you know, not going to be have your uh, case followed through to its uh, conclusion. And also, as you said, it's obviously got such a very direct character. He didn't just randomly attack anyone. He attacked her. And to regard that only as something that Jews should worry about. And it reminded me a little bit of this case, which, you know, is quite well known. It's after an attack on a synagogue in 1980 um, in France, in Paris. Uh, The then Prime Minister of France, Raymond Barre, said afterwards, this was a despicable attack that sought to target Jews and struck innocent Frenchmen who were crossing the Rue Copernique at the time. And this phrase, innocent Frenchman, is just extraordinary um, Mm -hmm. because it said that 40 years ago, the Prime Minister of France did not consider Jews either innocent or French. And obviously, the leader of the French Green Party isn't saying that. But this, but it shows you on some level that they just don't get it, mm-hmm. that he can say he understands the agitation of the, French, of the Jewish community, rather than saying he, as a French politician, is outraged that a racist hate crime like this could, be, could go uh, unprosecuted uh, in this way with, and no charges brought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, it seemed to me the to, to have an echo. You know, the, the, obviously the French Jewish community, which is the third largest in the world, but they, they are less than a percent of the population. Obviously, a little bit like the American Jewish community, right? They have prominent roles in politics and culture and and, and, and literature, medicine, science, what have you. Now, I, I just asked the Jewish agency to give me the data on how many French Jews wanted to make Aliyah. And there is a, a really an increase of 50% in the people who asked to make Aliyah in the beginning of, of 2021. Now, this has to do with coronavirus as well. But just it, it goes to show, and again, of course, obviously, Israel is supposed to be that safe haven of Jews around the world. It's its raison d'etre, if you will. But that's not solving the problem. Solving the problem is to make Jews in France feel safe. And if the legal system can't do that or the political system, then then I think we have we have a problem. Yeah, uh, it's, it's all that's also one that has to be handled carefully. I remember yeah. 
that after the attack on the Jewish kosher supermarket mm-hmm. uh, in um, in 2015, that Netanyahu went to the funeral and said to French Jews, right, come to Israel rather, make Aliyah, that Israel is your real home. And, you know, right at that moment, uh, that wasn't that helpful because, mm. you know, Jews wrestle with the accusation of dual allegiances and divided loyalties. And at that moment, it's not great for an Israeli prime minister to be saying this is where you you don't belong in France. You mm. belong in Israel. And, and yet, even if, you know, of course, French Jews like Jews everywhere will feel a strong bond and attachment with Israel, right then their struggle was to be accepted as equal citizens of France, worthy of the protection of the state and of the law. And in this terrible case, uh, it's that it suggests that even after all this time, you know, 41 years on from the attack on the synagogue, that isn't, you know, you cannot take that as read, that you are regarded as equal and that you're, you know, uh, that if one of you is killed, the full force of the law will come, descend upon your killer. And that's what this um, uh, judgment strikes, that really very, very difficult chord that goes right back to the, you know, in in the French Revolution, you know, that famous line about to the Jews as individuals, we will give everything to the Jews as a people, nothing. You know, even as individuals, there is um, a question mark over whether they have the full protection of their state. Yeah. Now, despite the uh, heaviness of the stuff you and I have managed to talk about, you, uh, your need, we do have traditions to honour on Indeed. the podcast. You don't mess and with traditions, those, Jonathan, especially if you're Jewish. We are creatures of tradition, you know that. So we always like to give out a chutzpah and mensch award at this point in the podcast. And our chutzpah recipient, I, I'm not even going to say a nominee because I just think it's well. Actually, there are there are two um, the, who I really like, but the uh, what the, the first one must be for sheer unadulterated chutzpah. <laughs> it has emerged that a man in Jerusalem who worked for years as a rabbi in an ultra orthodox community has been unmasked or at least accused anyway of faking his religion to mask the, his true identity, which is that he is a Christian missionary from New Jersey. <laughs> I mean, this is obviously a very sensitive point. People do yes. not like the idea of people evangelising and trying to convert Jews to Christianity. Uh, you know, Christian missionaries do have to have historically always attached a great premium to managing to convert a Jew. But the, an organisation, Beinenu, which monitors this, said that they found this man was dressing up in ultra-Orthodox clothes and even performed marriage ceremonies for Jewish couples in order to hide the bitter truth that he was secretly on the sly using his position as looking like basically a Haredi rabbi to convert people to Jesus. Uh, it, apparently once it said that he assimilated into the ultra-Orthodox community uh, but it was a life full of lies. Um, I just think this is almost the definition of chutzpah, <laughs> that even your like, Haredi-bearded rabbi is secretly think, telling you the good news of, of Jesus of Nazareth. I think as conversion tactics go, I'm not sure how effective it was. Um, there may be a lot of people who were uh, swayed Shame by this guy. Shame on you, Christian rabbi. Um, but he, he apparently has said, it's a lie, I was born Jewish. He added that while he worked as a missionary seven or eight years ago, he had since repented. Anyway, it's a, it's, it's a story replete yep. 
with chutzpah. It's 2021, um, so a priest and a rabbi walk into the bar and they're the same person, right? That, <laughs> that's has right. To be, that has to be the case. That's right. That would be the good setup for the joke. So that's my um, opening chutzpah nominee. I, I, you know, tell you what, I'm going to hog, um, to use that Jewish verb, both yes. chutzpah nominations. And then you, I think you're, because you're going to do Oh, so you're doing two chutzpah and I'm doing two mensch? That's what you do. You do two mensch okay. because I've got another candidate, okay. which is that James Carville, who uh, was a brilliant uh, advisor to Bill Clinton, got helped Bill, get Bill Clinton elected in uh, 1992. Mm-hmm. He gave a very wide-ranging interview with Vox uh, and uh, was talking about how much the Democratic Party people have got to... Democratic Party have to change. They've got to be less elitist. They've got to communicate with people at kind of street level. And he said, I always tell people, we've got to stop speaking Hebrew and start speaking Yiddish. <laughs> He's listening to our program, John. I think he's probably an unholy listener. <laughs> you know, we should get Carville on this show, don't you think? We should do that. We I'll do it. When you say Hebrew. you always say when you say we, we should, you mean me. I'll do. I'll I'll do it. Okay. You put in that call. Um, he probably speaks um, Hebrew and a little bit of Yiddish For sure. after our Yiddish introduction on the podcast. So I just think that's great. I love the idea that in order to make the point that you shouldn't be elitist, he is making a <laughs> distinction between the Jewish two Jewish languages as if his hypothetical voter in Nebraska would really understand immediately the distinction between Hebrew, the ancient language of the Bible and, uh, and of prayer, with Yiddish, the kind of street lingo of the Jews in diaspora. But that's what he meant anyway. I think that's, uh, yeah, I, I, it's cheeky of James Carville, and so he's my second chutzpah nominee. Uh, agreed. Uh, we, I think we both love James Carville. I, I'm, rem- I am reminded of the fact that he was uh, Ehud Barak's advisor in the 1999 elections. He came here uh, against Benjamin Netanyahu, one of those times yeah. that Netanyahu lost. Uh, and he had this saying about Israel, which I kind of quote, although it's a little outdated, but he used to say Israel has a 24-hour news cycle. He said, generally, there's a 24-hour news cycle. Israel has a one-hour news cycle. So, of course, the world has moved into a sec- two-second news cycle, but that was very poignant about him uh, to, for him to say about Israel. Uh, okay, Mensch nominees? Yes, please. Of the week? Uh, it's I raining would like to me- hear yours. It, it's raining Mensch because I have two nominees. <laughs> My <laughs> first one is Sapir Berman, who previously identified as a man, uh, and she came out this week as Israel's ev- first ever transgender soccer referee received also received a virtual hug from Israel's most famous transgender which is of course Donna International we discovered you're a fan a few episodes ago big Jonathan. fan of Donna International um, yeah. and this you know this story is great it also illustrates just uh, what a country of paradoxes we are right I mean the Knesset is becoming more conservative with the openly homophobic parties and on the other hand this story uh, which is of course making headlines all over the world my tell sec- me is, yes. are Israeli football matches now being taken place again in front of mm-hmm. crowds. Yes, yes. So it'll be very interesting to see how the yep. crowds react. Of I mean, course. it's always been said here that foot players, let alone officials, have been wary of coming out as, as gay or anything else uh, in this country because they fear the abuse from the terraces. And it'll be very interesting to see. Yeah, that's going to happen on Sunday, the first yeah, we'll match, see. and uh, we'll see. Thus far, she has received a lot of uh, very, very, um, you know, a lot of congratulations. People really sort of hugging her. Uh, let's see what happens. Is uh, let's hope it it it's going to be uh, okay. And the second 
nominee is Sir David Attenborough or Sir Mensch David Attenborough. Um, you know, obviously a natural historian, go-to authority on the natural world uh, with his two projects out this month. And I saw them both, Jonathan. I really recommend that you see them. One is about, uh, one is called The Year the Earth Changed. While we were at home, the animal life kind of thrived and that's beautiful to see. And the other is Life in Color in which he captures sort of the dazzling colors of wildlife. Two comments on that. I hope I'm not spoiling it for anyone. One is that males make a huge effort to impress um, you know, females. And peacocks are ridiculous creatures. That's it. I'm going to put it out there. Ridiculous, ridiculous creatures. How did they ever survive evolution? I'm just saying. They're beautiful, but it's ridiculous. You have put it out there. And uh, the idea that males make a tremendous effort to impress. Did you really need David Attenborough to tell you that? I wanted, I wanted his authoritative voice, Jonathan. I yeah, think authoritative voices are important. We have his endorsement. Maybe David Attenborough is a listener to this show. If you are, uh, David, please do uh, review uh, and give us five stars. Tell your friends. You can also see us on Instagram at Two Jews on the News. No numbers, just letters. And do spread the word. David Attenborough, you are pretty good at that. At communicating, tell the world about Unholy. And we would like to thank our executive producer, uh, Lior Friedman, and Rome Attic, head of podcast, and Arad Eshel for original music. Next week, Jonathan and I will argue about Yugoslavia in the 90s. Do tune in. <laughs> yeah, it's going to become a permanent thing. I think maybe we can <laughs> rotate our subjects of disagreement. It's our first rotation agreement, uh, but that is a deal. 